This episode is brought to you by our friends at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS exists to provide ministerial training in the context of a confessional local church. They are, among other things, confessional, Baptist, affordable, and accessible. They are also now fully accredited by the Association of Reformed Theological Seminaries. You can learn more about them at their website, which is cbtseminary.org. Again, that is cbtseminary.org. The Covenant Podcast exists to discuss doctrine, theology, and the biblical worldview from a covenantal Baptist perspective. We pray that this resource will be edifying to you and glorifying to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. Jimmy Johnson here with Austin McCormick. As usual, this episode we have the privilege of interviewing Phil Newton. He is the co-author of the helpful book, Elders and the Life of the Church. Phil has served as the pastor at Southwoods Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee, correct? That's right. And he has been there for over 30 years. He has an MDiv from New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, a doctorate of ministry from Fuller Theological Seminary, and a PhD from Southeastern Theological Seminary. He has co-written or written several books, including the one mentioned earlier that we're going to be discussing. And he and his wife, Karen, have been married for over 40 years. Um, Welcome to the Covenant Podcast, Phil. Thanks so much. Good to be with you, brothers. So, as I mentioned, today we are going to be discussing elders in the life of the church. Austin, would you help get us started with the first question? Yeah, let's uh, start real simple. And uh, can you define some of the main terms and themes of church polity and Baptist life? Uh, What does it mean to be a congregational church? Well, when you think about a congregational church, that simply means that the congregation is involved in some measure in decision-making. And that can run the gamut. Um, I served one church that I think voted on just about everything you would do. If they were going to buy a box of toilet paper, they would, not quite, but almost, they would vote on that. So that's, that's an extreme on one side. The other end is that the congregation is involved in dealing with larger decisions and you have a leadership structure. Uh, in our case, uh, the leadership structure focuses on elders and elder plurality, both staff elders and non-staff elders, so paid and unpaid. And we are involved in the leadership of the church. We deal with the day-to-day. We deal with the big issues. Uh, we uh, focus on, um, on doing uh, probably most of the decisions, but when it comes to the larger decisions, the congregation does that. And so we're in office because the congregation has voted to put us in office. Um, the congregation votes in our budget. So that affects our income uh, for those of us that are uh, paid elders, uh, pastors of our church. Uh, we just voted to uh, do in addition to, uh, to our church. Congregation made that decision. It was not the 
the uh, elders that made the decision. It was the congregation that did that. So congregationalism means the the church is making decisions. Uh, and, and so that runs the gamut depending upon how that local church, at autonomous as they are, uh, decide on uh, the limits of the congregation. Uh, with that, uh, a local church has pastors slash elders slash overseers, whatever you want to call them, and and deacons. And so there is both a pastoral role that is involved in shepherding, and then there is a, uh, a servant temporal role that is involved in more temporal issues. Could you flesh out those two offices for us? You you mentioned both pastors and or elders or overseers, and then also deacons. Can you flesh out what they do and how they relate and differ from one another? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's important to understand the distinction. I, I know a lot of times when I've been in conversations with people in Baptist churches, they'll say, well, We've got deacons. Why do we need elders? And and I'll say you need elders because the elders are going to attend to the spiritual issues of uh, the life of the congregation. Elders are shepherds. Uh, the uh, the term pastor, elder, and overseer are used interchangeably. Some of them is verbs, or uh, in the verbal form. Some of them in the nominal form, uh, in order to express this shepherding role that is done by the elders. The deacons, on the other hand, uh, the the uh, diaconate comes from a term that literally means to wait on tables. And so the, the implication is that deacons are going to be involved in, uh, in doing servant responsibilities uh, on temporal issues within the church. And that doesn't mean that there's never an overlap because sometimes there will be an overlap. There may be deacons that are doing... Um, benevolent work or they're doing some widow care and that will overlap with some of the shepherding work that the uh, the elders will be doing. And I, I like to think of it as the uh, that uh, both of these groups, the elders and the deacons are involved in serving the congregation, setting an example for the congregation, standing for the truth. It's just that the roles of those two offices are distinguished in terms of what they do on a daily basis. Yeah. Uh, as we ask you these questions, we are uh, trying to keep them very simple for our audience. So there is some overlap and uh, you are answering part of our questions and some of the next question, but okay. like you did in the last question, can you flush out this next one? Um Scripture uses multiple terms, as you know, in your book to label the teaching and leadership office in the church. What are these terms and what do they teach us about the office and the men who fill it? Okay. When you begin to look at the the term for elder, uh, that is the most common term that's used for this particular office. Uh, We see the term pastor used or translated as pastor uh, on two occasions in Ephesians 4. And then in Philippians one, uh, and the the other occasions we'll see the term shepherd or shepherding, shepherd the flock of God which is among you. Acts chapter twenty verse twenty eight, First Peter five. Both of those use uh, use the verbal form of pastor. The the same thing with 
uh, with the term overseer that the King James translates as bishops. We, you know, tend to think of bishops wearing pointy hats and <laughs> robes and all that. So that doesn't fit too well in our Baptist polity. But the the idea of bishop is one that's an overseer and sometimes that is used in the uh, in the verbal form. And we see that both in the uh, the uh, as a noun and as a verb in uh, uh, Acts chapter 20. We see it as a uh, as a verb in first Peter chapter five. Uh, and I, I like to distinguish it in, in this way. When you begin to think about elders, that was a very Jewish term. Uh, we see that often in the Old Testament, the elders who by right of age were to be men of wisdom who were leading the rest of the people of Israel. They would have been teaching. They would have been uh, uh, giving direction, setting an example. Overseer, and, and that's the, the word uh, presbyteros, uh, overseer is the word episkopos in the Greek. And it was used of the city-state managers. And so you would have someone that administered what was going on within a local city. And and so the New Testament writers borrowed that term to uh, give more, maybe more of a Greek identity to some of what the, the elders are doing. And then you have uh, the Greek term poimen, uh, which we translate sometimes as shepherd, sometimes as pastor. Uh, and uh, that that is conveying this idea of care or shepherding. So I'm, I like to divide up in four areas, and I, I think there, there are four specific areas that the New Testament speaks of about the role of elders. Uh, elders are involved in the doctrine of the church, and so not just ensuring that there's good doctrine, but teaching that good doctrine. They're involved in discipline or discipling the congregation. And so you you have the formal discipline that goes on uh, or for, formative discipline that goes on every week as you're teaching. Or then sometimes you have the formal corrective dis, uh, discipling that goes on when you're exercising church discipline. And then you got the area of direction or leadership. So you're you're making decisions. You're seeking the Lord for uh, the, the direction for the congregation. And then I think the most daunting is that elders, pastors are to be an example to the flock. Uh, and we uh, see Peter bringing that out so powerfully. Uh, you, you see that as well in, in Hebrews 13, verse 7 and verse 17. Uh, uh, particularly verse seven about uh, following the example, uh, you know, noticing those who have led you and seek to imitate their life. I mean, that is a daunting thing. And so I'm, I remind our, our guys that are serving as elders, we are to be examples for the flock. And so that's why there's so much attention given to the character of those who are going to be serving in this office. And may, maybe one of the breakdowns in in our Baptist circles has been taking a really low character view and having more of a popularity contest to elect guys to be deacons. And then suddenly a pastor comes in and he's trying to lead the church to uh, adopt elder plurality uh, for their leadership structure. And, and it's a real challenge for a congregation to begin to think, you know, it's important that these men are really biblically qualified. So, 
That to me is the biggest issue. Be uh, faithful, godly men. As as you said, um, it's sometimes hard for churches that don't currently practice a plurality of elders to to move in that direction. Um, what biblical evidence convinced you that a plurality of elders is the the correct way to go about church polity? Okay, that's that's such an important question, and one that I think we see it in a number of places throughout Scripture. Uh, for instance, in the, the first mention of elders in uh, Acts chapter 11, uh, referring to elders in the Jerusalem church, they, they heard what was going on in Antioch, and it's in the plural. And so you have to stop and think, okay, they didn't just have one elder, one pastor. Uh, there was a plurality. Then when you see Paul and Barnabas backtracking in Acts chapter 14, verse 23, they backtracked in the churches in the Galatian region where they that they had planted, and they established elders. Or the word is appointed, and, and it's a term that means uh, to to lift the hand. And so it's the idea that the these congregations were involved in, in this, but they appointed elders plural in every city, singular. So there was a plurality in each city. You see the same thing in Titus uh, 1.5 when Paul left uh, Titus in Crete and he uh, directed him to uh, appoint elders. He said, you know, set in order what remains, uh, appoint elders in every city, again, plural, uh, elders in every city, singular, uh, you know, just as Paul had uh, instructed him to do. So, we, we see that uh, in Philippians 1.1 1, 1, when Paul is writing that church, and it, it wouldn't have been a massive church by any means. It would have been a small congregation. And he addresses the overseers, plural, and the deacons, plural. Uh, you uh, see the, the, the same idea in 1 Peter 5 as Peter addresses elders, plural. You see it in Hebrews 13, those who are leading you, plural, uh, Hebrews thirteen seven, uh, so there there is that biblical evidence that plurality was practiced. You see that even in Jesus appointing the twelve uh, as uh, as his disciples or apostles, that they were the ones who were leading, not just Peter or later on, not just James. There was a plurality, and we need that because we need the wisdom of other brothers. We need accountability. We need to guard our own hearts from um, the the pride, uh, authoritarianism, uh, any uh, kind of egotism that would arise. And when you're preaching to a group of people week after week and they come and tell me, oh, that was just so wonderful. That was just so great. Before long, we start believing the press reports. And we need a group of elders around us that keep us steady so that we we realize, no, we're not nearly as great as we think we are. And having those men around us help us understand those guys are sharp. I learn from them. I learn from my elders. They have insights that I don't have. Uh, we will more effectively shepherd the church if there's more than one shepherd. And we will make better decisions 
if there's more than one shepherd that's trying to make all those decisions. And so there, there's the biblical evidence of it. And then there are so many practical reasons. And, and I, I think the, the wisdom involved, the accountability and the shepherding uh, alone are good enough for reason to stop and think, you know, that makes a lot of sense. Very well said. And that was uh, very enjoyable to listen to, brother. So I thank you for that. Um, We love Baptist history here at the Covenant Podcast, and you engage with some Baptist history in your book. Uh, The first chapter in your book is titled, Why Baptist Elders is Not an Oxymoron. Uh, Can you give us a summary of what you convey in the first chapter? Yeah, I'll be glad to. I I opened it up by talking about something I saw when I was a um, I, I guess an, or a young teenager, early teen, our church is having a, it's hundred hundredth anniversary, I believe at the time. And, and so they, they had pictures on, along the wall in one hallway. And the first couple of guys were called elder, elder Jennings. And I forgot the other guy's name, but it had elder. And I thought, wait a minute, the church of Christ, one block up from us has elders why don't we have elders? What what is this? And so that you know that began to stir my thinking about about elders, and uh, and so uh, you know seeing it over and over and over in the Word, and realizing some of this doesn't add up really well with what I've been taught or what I've been led to believe. So what what does Baptist history teach? Well, when you begin to dig into it, there are so many examples of elder plurality, both across the pond with our UK brothers and uh, in North America, even in the colonial period, uh, the Philadelphia Confed- or the Philadelphia Association, which was the first Baptist association. Uh, if, if you read the minutes, you'll find lots and lots of evidence of elder plurality that was taking place within those churches. One interesting one was a fellow that had, been a ruling elder, and they they did some of the Presbyterian distinguishing between a ruling elder and a teaching elder. And so the church posed a question. They had a guy that was a ruling elder, uh, but his gifts had developed, and the church wanted him to begin doing preaching and, and teaching. Uh, should he be ordained with the laying on of hands? And they affirm yes. And which tells me they had a plurality of elders. They they may have done it differently than than we do uh, at this stage, but they recognize the necessity for plurality. Same thing was true with the Elkhorn Baptist Association in 1790, uh, and uh, they they practice elder plurality. And so when you when you go back and look at some of the early writers like Samuel uh, uh, Griffith or, or uh, uh, Samuel Jones, rather, uh, and then uh, I'm, I'm forgetting the Griffiths name. It, you know, I'm an old guy, and so every once in a while a name will slip me. But uh, some of those old writers in the 18th century and early 19th century, uh, as, as they did uh, the confessional documents for the church, they, uh, they identified elder plurality as being part of it. Uh, W.B. Johnson, who uh, was the first 
a president of the Southern Baptist Convention was a strong advocate for elder plurality. He actually called them bishops. I don't know how, how the guy got away with it, but he called them bishops. And, and he said that it was important that if, uh, if a man went to pastor of church, he could do it solo. This is my words. He could do it solo, but as soon as possible, he needed to uh, have a plurality of bishops uh, established in the church. The things really began to get uh, to go astray. I think in the uh, late 18th century, uh, because of the influence uh, of uh, the Enlightenment and the emphasis on individualism, you know, we we've heard so much talk in. Uh, in just regular American history about the rugged individualism of Americans. Well, that rugged individualism also meant that there was a uh, a movement in the church to think in individualistic terms instead of in corporate terms. So you, you had a man like Isaac Bacchus, who's a wonderful preacher of the gospel. He was involved in planning churches. He was involved in training guys. But because of his congregationalist background and because of the of the suffering that he and his family endured uh, at the hands of the governing authorities, he was just against any kind of authority. And so he pressed what I would call a hyper-congregationalism. I mean, everything was focused on, on the congregation. So guys that he sent out to plant uh, churches, uh, he he really pressed upon them more of a weakened clergy, as one writer put it, and and did not allow them to uh, have elder plurality, which was common among the Baptists that were part of the Philadelphia Baptist Association in the 18th century. Then you, you had John Leland who followed him, uh, and uh, one uh, one old book that I read said that Leland. Uh, was much more Jeffersonian than he was biblical in the way he viewed church polity. And and so he pressed the same kind of, um, of hyper-congregationalism, democracy within the church, similar to what uh, you see in Isaac Bacchus. Then by the end, uh, in, um, Bacchus was one of the few 18th century Baptist leaders that actually did a lot of writing. Uh, he was followed by Leland, who was his disciple, and Leland did a lot of writing. Uh, and then uh, after uh, L- Leland, uh, uh, there, uh, there was uh, uh, Francis Wayland, who was also a prolific writer and really not very theologically anchored. He thought that polity was more of an accidental event of history instead of something spelled out in Scripture. So when you have the primary writing Baptists uh, out of that particular historical era uh, being more anti-elder, then you see it start to diminish. Uh, later on, you, you had the influence of, uh, of landmarkism with J.M. Pendleton's uh, uh, as as the uh, primary theologian among the the, the landmarkists, and and they had a strict democracy. Well, congregationalism is not uh, democracy as such. Uh, it it is it is representative. We have elders, 
uh, who are representing the congregation as we make decisions. And the congregation does have a voice uh, to uh, to decide whether or not those guys will serve as elders and they can they can remove them as elders. Uh, so what happened historically was there there was this diminishing of elder plurality that was starting uh, in the late 1700s, early 1800s, and by, and by the time you get to the uh, to the 1900s, it's uh, it's really pretty rare that you find a Baptist congregation that practice elder plurality. Uh, you also see a change in the early um, um, uh, among Southern Baptists uh, in, in the early uh, confessional documents. So the Baptist faith and message identified. Uh, elders uh, or bishops and deacons as the offices of the church. When you get to the uh, 1963 and the 2000 Baptist faith and message, they leave out elder and overseer and just put pastors. The two offices are pastors and deacons. And so then you get reaction from people uh, saying uh, that this is, uh, you know, is, it's just not just not Baptist, you know, to have elders. Uh, and, uh, you know, the matter is not whether it's Baptist. The matter is, is it biblical? If it's biblical, you go for it. Well, it's not only biblical, but it's also Baptist. Not all Baptists had uh, practiced elder plurality historically, but many of them did. And you see the same thing in the U.K. Um, you already alluded to the answer of this next question, but I, I think it's important to talk about specifically is what is the relationship between the elders and the members of the congregation? Like, how do they relate to one another? How should they think of each other, I, I suppose, would be one way to put it. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's such a good question. Those who are serving as elders need to look at themselves as shepherds of the congregation, not autocrats, uh, not someone to be prying into every area of uh, the members of the congregation's lives, not someone that's going to be controlling decisions in the members of the congregation. Rather, they're shepherding. Uh, they are to be servant leaders. And if a man's not going to be a servant leader, he does not need to be, need to be an elder. He's going to be trouble if, uh, if he gets into that office. And so he should be a servant leader. He should be caring for the flock. He should be conscious of setting example uh, for the flock. He should be feeding them the word uh, and discipling them. He should be guarding them from false teaching. Uh, he should be helping them to grow in faithfulness and learn how to be faithful in serving and in interacting with one another. The congregation on, on their part should really have a spirit of gratitude that God has so established the church that he hadn't left the church hung out by themselves trying to figure out what's going to happen when they gather on Sunday. And, you know, does anybody have a word for us today? And somebody gets up and mumbles something that uh, is not an exposition of Holy Scripture. Uh, the flock's not going to be fed like that. And, and so uh, there is uh, that need for gratitude. Uh, there's the the sense of approval, you, you think about 1 Timothy 5, uh, where Paul talks about uh, honoring those who are, uh, who are over you in the Lord, who are uh, you know, serving as elders. And, and Paul said that the ones that uh, are, uh, are 
particularly serving in preaching and teaching are worthy of, of double honor. And the idea there is there to be re, uh, remunerated uh, in, in some way. And so the church has a responsibility of saying, am I appropriately honoring these men? Uh, am, am I recognizing God has appointed them? Do I recognize that they will be giving an account for my soul one day, as Hebrews 13 says. And so the writer of Hebrews says, let them be able to do what they do with joy and not with grief, because this would be unprofitable for you. Uh, and so the congregation is to obey those who are leading them. Now, that's been strained and stretched and, and I, I think misused from time to time. But as long as these men are being faithful to the word of God, the congregation needs to be obedient. They need to follow their leadership. Can they question where they're going? Yeah, sure, absolutely. And if an elder cannot defend biblically what he's doing, then you know the, the congregation has a right to say, brothers, why don't you put the brakes on just a little bit until you know and understand the will of God. Uh, and so there's that give and take. There is a sense that the elders are accountable to the congregation for that reason. Hmm. Uh, this next part of the conversation, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on. Uh, whenever I've talked to people that are opposed to plurality of elders, uh, it seems like this next topic gets brought up very quickly. So the question that we have for you is, do all elders need to be paid as staff in the church? Absolutely not. I think we impoverish the leadership of the congregation by not having lay elders. And, and you know, I, I use that term. Some people recall the idea when you use the word lay because it sound, uh, sounds so Catholic, but we use it a lot in Baptist circles too. Uh, but we need the insights. We need the wisdom. Uh, we need the shepherding gifts of those who are non-staff or lay elders who have other jobs. They're working faithfully. And the Lord is using them in the body of Christ, but they're not giving themselves to the full time work that I do in uh, I'm going to be teaching hermeneutics to our uh, adults and our students uh, working through the, the book of uh, through Romans eight this summer. So I'll, I'll have 13 weeks. It's going to take me a good while to get ready to do that. Those guys don't have the time to do that. They're uh, doing advertising work or they're doing dental work or they're doing medical work or they're doing sales. And th they don't have the time uh, to put their energies into that. But I do. And um, the, the other guys that are uh, compensated by the church are, uh, have that privilege of doing that. Some of those guys don't have gifts in the pulpit. You know, uh, but they're fabulous teachers. They're just, you know, because an elder uh, is is not required to preach. And uh, even though Paul makes that distinction, preaching and teaching, he uses both of those in First Timothy five. But in the requirement for an elder, it said uh, that elders must be apt to teach uh, in in First Timothy three. And, and so there is that distinction of gifts when when you look at uh, at uh, men serving as elders, uh, is they're they're not monolithic in that we all have exactly the same 
gifts. We all have exactly the same uh, abilities. Uh, rather, uh, God has gifted us in different ways. And so this is where the congregation needs to recognize those men that God would use to teach and train and equip the congregation best through their preaching abilities, uh, through their leadership abilities on a daily basis and compensate them. And the, the other guys that are not compensated, honor them, pray for them, encourage them, thank God for them, because they're the ones that are doing so many things behind the scenes to help those of us who are compensated. So I, I hope that answers your question, at least to some degree. May not satisfy everyone, but it really <laughs> satisfies me. <laughs> <laughs> well, this this next question is is probably a little bit more personal to both Austin and I because we are both convinced that a plurality of elders is is the biblical way of church governance. So, what advice would you give to pastors like Austin and I who currently lead in churches that don't practice a plurality of elders, and and what might he do to lead his congregation in this direction? Yeah, that's. I get asked that question a lot. The first thing I do uh, tell guys is be patient. Uh, it doesn't happen overnight. If you think about how people have gotten ingrained ideas about what the church is, uh, it's happened over a period of years, generally by either a neglect of teaching or sometimes just some unbiblical teaching. So you have to patiently teach and train the congregation. Uh, they, they need to understand the gospel, and they need to understand the nature and the design of the church. Uh, uh, my, my conviction is that a lot of congregations really don't mu know much ecclesiology, and because they don't know much ecclesiology, they're going to react when a young pastor like you comes in and, and says, I think we need to have elder plurality. And they say, go ahead and start packing your bags. <laughs> uh, and, you know, and that's, that's happened to, uh, to so many guys over the years. And I think, I think one of the things we, we run ahead of where the congregation is, take time, uh, keep teaching the word, keep shepherding the congregation the more the congregation understands the nature of the church and the need to be shepherded. And by, and by shepherded, I don't mean just somebody that's going to check on them when, when they're having a bunion removed from their toe. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm talking about helping people grow spiritually, uh, being with them when they're going through trials, uh, walking with them through adversity, walking with them through suffering, teaching them to rely uh, upon the the providence of God at work, uh, helping them see the full application of the gospel in daily life. The more that happens, the more a, uh, a a church member begins to listen and think, wait a minute, I need this shepherding. This is critical for my life. And this one guy cannot do it all. Um, once Once a congregation begins to see that, then I, it, it's not nearly as hard to move t toward elder plurality. Another thing is uh, sometimes churches have seen the, uh, the the downside of an autocratic pastor trying to control everything. So one, one of the ways I think that we help nip that in the bud, even if we don't have elders, is 
maybe take the current leadership structure and a portion of it. And, you know, maybe the church has 10 deacons, but there are three of the guys that they really are just have the kind of gifts that seem to be elder quality. Then that pastor might say, I'm going to ask these three guys uh, to be a, uh, an accountability group for me and to help me with some of the shepherding responsibilities. Call them whatever you want to call them. Call them a pastoral team or call them a, a, a shepherding helpers or, you know, just give them whatever name you want to give them. But let the congregation see some eldering take place. We'll use that as uh, as a gerund. Um, and uh, we'll in see, see that taking place. And then the later on, they, you know, when you begin, begin to present it, then they start to understand it. And I would say with that smaller group of leadership uh, guys you're discipling or guys that you're being accountable uh, with, teach them about the nature of the church and teach them about biblical church polity. Um, you know, teaching about how essential that is to the health of the church, I think is, is critical. Uh, Mark Dever brings this out in his book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. And one of those nine marks is biblical church polity. And, and Mark, you know, of course, brings out a number of, of important reasons on that. But, you know, one of the primary things is the church is really getting shepherded, shepherded better by several men instead of one man. And so, uh, there, there are more eyes to see. There are more ears to hear. There are more feet to to go and do what needs to be done. Slowly helping the church to see that and maybe doing that visibly. And and some of that may be uh, moving, uh, dividing and conquering with the, I shouldn't use that word conquering. That's, that wouldn't be appropriate. <laughs> but dividing uh, with the the group of um, of deacons, if there are some deacons that really are more elder quality deacons, give them some elder quality assignments and and see see how that works out and give the other guys um, more of those temporal responsibilities, but commend them both because they're both needed. It's not one or the other. Uh, the Bible never pits elders and deacons against each other. So I think you uh, you do these kinds of things. You. Uh, preach and teach expositionally. And so you're going through the scripture and the church is going to come up. You, you're going to preach Acts 20 sometime. You're going to uh, uh, preach through 1 Peter 5 sometime. You're going to preach through Hebrews 13 sometime. You're going to preach through 1 Timothy 3 and 1 Timothy 5 and Titus 1 sometime. You, you're going to be working through these passages. And when you do, just say, this is what the word teaches. You don't have to make a big deal about it other than make a big deal about what the word says. And, uh, and out of that, as people really begin to, uh, to get a heart to think biblically, then you start making that transition. It doesn't need to happen in a year or two. And, you know, I, when, when guys go into their church in the first couple of years, they're, they're trying to transition elder plurality. I'm about to pull my hair out and thinking, brother, I don't want you to get fired. <laughs> because these people need you to teach them the word. So teach them the word and feed them the word. And as they walk in obedience, then you start seeing this transition uh, begin to take place. And I think it, you know, you, I, I can be arbitrary and say, okay, you should take at least five years to do that. 
and that may be true in some churches. Other churches, it may be seven years. Other churches, it may be 10 years until the, until the, some of the really bad teaching and bad beliefs have been uprooted and people really start thinking biblically. And so this is where pastors need to be discerning of their congregation. You know, it's okay. Have those conversations with, with people about the, about uh, the church leadership and elder plurality. Uh, but let the word do the work, the word in the spirit. And th- that way, the, the burden is on the word, you know, uh, and, you know, I don't I don't mind going in any kind of setting and somebody, uh, you know, if somebody's in opposition to the type of polity we practice, I'm more than happy to say, OK, let's open the Bible. I'll be glad to show you out of the scripture why we do what we do. Now, you show me out of the scripture why you do what you do. And that's where things get a little bit dicey because some people just, you know, they're not able to do that because they can't. Well, Phil, we've uh, enjoyed this conversation today. Uh, I know I could speak on behalf of both of us that we're grateful that you took the opportunity to come on. This last question that we have for you is, what are some resources that you might recommend for us to read about? I know you mentioned uh, Mark Dever's book, and obviously yeah. we have your book. Uh, with, is there any other resources that you would recommend to us? Yeah, Jeremy Rennie has a uh, a good book on uh, elders. I I don't even remember. I think it's just called Elders, and it's in it's in the little small nine mark series. Um, uh, ben Merkel has forty questions about elders and deacons. A really, really good, helpful book. And uh, Ben's PhD work was looking at the, the term presbyteros in episkopos and showing from the scripture that uh, that these terms are parallel terms and they're they're used synonymously. So he's he's an expert on uh, on the subject. Uh, Alexander Strauch books is wonderful, particularly in dealing with the character of the elders. The only thing he, he deals more from the angle of elder rule rather than elder leadership. And I, I think in our Baptist circles, we need to press the issue of elder leadership. Um, and so those would be some of the ones that that I would in, uh, encourage people to use. Uh, Gene Getz did a book a number of years ago called Elders and Leaders. And the way he deals with the character of the elders is fabulous. It's so, so good. But it's also one of, of uh, strong elder leadership, no congregational involvement. Uh, so I'm, I'd recommend Ben Merkel's, Jeremy Rennie's, uh, Mark Dever, uh, Mark's a small book where he talks about the, uh, the uh, glory of the congregation uh, it is uh, really deals with uh, elder plurality well. So those would be some of the things. Just be patient in the process and enjoy it. We'll just leave you with uh, a few moments before we conclude Austin'll end us. But do you have any other encouragement for for pastors or churches that that pertain to this subject? Yeah, I think this is one of those where, as someone that's been pastoring for um, almost 42 years, uh, I've pastored churches where uh, I was the only pastor. I was the only guy that had any preaching gifts. 
in, in the church. And so, uh, you know, consequently, I saw that uh, that need uh, for more men that could uh, that could serve and shepherd. I also saw the downfall of having men uh, elected as deacons that maybe didn't even have the qualities, uh, the character qualities of deacons, much less as elders. But because of the way the church was structured, they were functioning somewhat as elders, not in terms of shepherding, but in terms of some of the leadership and decision making. It was it was always disastrous. It just didn't work out well. Um, I, I had in one church I served, I had a, a group of deacons where there were a couple of the guys that really were elder quality guys. And it, and it showed in the way they handled things with the deacons. And that that was a somewhat of a saving grace uh, with with that group of deacons. But th- there was still the tension because these guys didn't know exactly what they were supposed to do. Do you do you deacon or do you elder? And uh, and so uh, I'm I'm encouraged by seeing so many churches now that have moved to elder plurality. And we we did this 20, I think, 27 years ago. Uh, something like that, and, and and it's been a really wonderful journey. It, it is one of the very best things in all of my forty-two years of being a senior pastor, and then a few more years of serving on on church staffs. And so, I can highly commend elder plurality. It's biblical, it's functional, and. I think it also helps save the life and the longevity of the pastor by giving a, a team around him that not only helps him guard his heart and life and guard his time and guard his schedule, but helps him in the work of ministry. And and so, uh, you know, I'm, I've been at our church now for almost 33 years, and I couldn't have done that if I hadn't had a good group of guys around me as fellow elders. Well, once again, brother, we're so thankful for you taking the time. And so we appreciate you coming on today. Enjoyed it. Blessings to you guys. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS exists to provide ministerial training in the context of a confessional local church. They are, among other things, confessional, Baptist, affordable, accessible, and accredited. You can listen to our previous episode with uh, Rex Simrad to learn more about CBTS or head on over to their website at cbtseminary.org. Thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. If you've enjoyed this resource or you simply like the Covenant Podcast, head on over to our iTunes page, subscribe, and leave us a review. We are also available via Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, YouTube, and Podbean. Thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.